It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. I'm Aaron Fulton with Raven News. Sitka's streak of COVID continued on Monday as local health officials reported another five positive cases. That puts the number of active cases now in the community at 33. A total of four residents have been hospitalized. Monday's patients range in age. Two were boys under the age of 10. One is a teenage boy. There was a woman in her 40s and a man in his 60s. All were experiencing symptoms of the flu-like virus. Three of them were infected by close contact with someone known to have COVID-19. The fifth was infected by community spread. Sitka remains at the red or high risk level. Officials recommend everyone wear a face covering in public spaces if possible, maintain social distance, avoid indoor gatherings, and practice good hygiene. Sitka schools, with the exception of Baranoff Elementary, are all in remote learning. Sitka now has a grand total of 211 cases since the beginning of the pandemic. There have been new cases reported every day since October 28th. The Archbishop of the Orthodox Diocese of Alaska, David Mahaffey, died last week. KCAW News spoke with Mahaffey on the eve of his consecration six years ago about how he came to Orthodoxy and how he found himself in the bishop's seat. KCAW's Catherine Rose brings us this retrospective. A bishop is, is, is to be a papa, um, and that's what he brings to us, is someone who loves us. Archbishop David Mahaffey was installed as the 16th bishop of the Orthodox Diocese in Sitka and Alaska in 2014. Mahaffey was born in Altoona, Pennsylvania, and was raised Methodist. His wife was Orthodox, but it wasn't until after they'd married that he attended his first Orthodox service. He spoke to KCAW reporter Emily Foreman in 2014 on the eve of his consecration in Sitka and told her that the Orthodox service was a light bulb moment. I was just like a sponge. I'm absorbing all this. And it's like, oh man, this is what I want. He converted and later, after years of working in the secular world as a car salesman, became a priest. After his wife passed away in 2007, Mahaffey told Foreman that a door opened. He could make the move from priest to bishop by taking the required monastic vows. But he would have rather had his wife than an open door, he told Foreman, saying she was everything to him. It took years for him to finally say yes to the church when the Diocese of Sitka and Alaska wanted him for bishop. He was reluctant, but when he visited Kodiak in 2013, on the anniversary of his wife's death and during the celebration of St. Herman's pilgrimage, he had a realization. Look, let me explain it to you. This is going on kind of, you know, like, I don't know if it was St. Herman or my wife or God or whoever saying, don't you get it? You know, you had a beautiful wife who was beautiful inside and out, and she really was. So what came to me was this sense that, look, I've replaced your wife's physical beauty with the beauty of Alaska. And I've replaced her inner beauty with the beauty of the people of Alaska. Isn't that what you want? Mahaffey passed away on November 27th. He was 68 years old. He is survived by his four children and their families. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Catherine Rose. Mahaffey's funeral service will be held on December 1st in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. It will be live-streamed on the Orthodox Church of America's website on Tuesday, beginning at 11 a.m. Alaska Standard Time. You can find a link to that on our website, kcaw.org. Ketchikan emergency officials on Monday lowered the risk level to moderate. As KRBD's Eric Stone reports, an outbreak that spread rapidly through the community has slowed considerably since Ketchikan's risk level was upgraded to high on November 4th. 
Emergency officials point to October 26th as the start of an outbreak that eventually sickened more than 100 people in Ketchikan. But what was once a torrent of new cases has now slowed to a trickle, and that's led local officials to relax some recommendations for pandemic precautions. Here's Emergency Manager Abner Hogue. There are a few cases here. I'm not saying it's completely gone in Ketchikan. Um, so for that reason, we need to keep our interactions, you know, the, the safety measures and, and health measures in place. Um, but we can start to do a few more things again, as long as we're careful. Hogue says it's still important to wear a mask in public spaces, maintain adequate spacing, and wash hands. But the situation now is less precarious than it was early this month. The community's done a really good job of taking to heart the recommendations that we've made. We saw a lot of businesses and individuals change some of their habits to help get us back down. And uh, we've successfully dropped into the, the level two risk zone, and we've held there for several days. Ketchikan's four-tier community risk system takes a variety of pandemic indicators like community spread and test positivity, and it outputs recommendations for local officials to control the outbreak. At level three or high, officials issued voluntary recommendations for bars to close and restaurants to reduce capacity to 25 percent. Some did and others didn't. But Hogue says there's no reason to think Ketchikan would have fared better with mandatory rather than voluntary restrictions. I think we've made the right decision for Ketchikan, is what I will tell you, and I think it's working for our community. And as long as that continues to work, um, I don't see a reason to change it. At level two, bars are no longer recommended to close, though officials say they should still limit capacity to ensure there's enough room for social distancing. It's a similar story for local restaurants. Local officials now recommend 50% capacity instead of 25%. And importantly, emergency officials say middle and high schoolers can now safely return to classrooms full time. Hoke points to one factor in particular that helped Ketchikan turn the tide, rapid, high-volume testing. Creekside Clinic purchased a machine that can run upwards of 200 tests a day back in July after borough officials first floated the idea. These days, the downtown clinic runs nearly every coronavirus test provided by the city and borough governments at its free downtown drive-up site. And many local clinics have their own rapid testing machines, and Ketchikan's hospital has a few of their own, too. In general, our test turnaround time is really impressive at, at one to two days. Um, there's other communities in southeast Alaska that I've spoken with that are seeing seven-plus day turnaround times, and that's their best time. And if, you're, if your test results are that far out, they really become almost not useful anymore, to be honest. There have been some hiccups. Hogue says some mid-November tests were sent to the lower 48 when a shipment of testing supplies didn't come in on time. Those results took a week or more to come back. Contact tracing also played a critical role, Hogue says. Dozens of cases were traced back to restaurants owned by Cape Fox Corporation, but Hogue says the fact that the Saxman-based Native Corporation shared the news with the community and local officials, closed its restaurants, and tested its staff was valuable. While community spread is down, the coronavirus is still present in Ketchikan. There have been at least two cases of community spread in recent days. But Hogue says the more pressing threat around the holidays is travel. He says those who went out of town for the long weekend should ensure they follow the state's health protocols. At minimum, follow the state recommendations of five days of strict social distancing and one negative test before you start returning to the office or returning to school or any of those sorts of things, visiting with friends. 
Ideally, Hoag says travelers should quarantine for 10 to 14 days, with a second test at least a week after arriving, whether they came from in-state or out-of-state. Hoag says returning college students should be especially careful, since younger people are more likely not to show symptoms, and asymptomatic people can still spread the virus. We don't have a ton of COVID here right now. We want to keep it that way. And the only way it can get in is when somebody new comes into the community, right? The state health department also dropped its own separate risk level for Ketchikan in southern southeast Alaska in recent days, including Prince of Wales Island and Metlakatla. As of Monday, it's the only region in the state not at a high pandemic alert level. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. State biologists have again predicted underperforming king salmon runs in the Taku and Stikine River systems. That means that southeast Alaska's troll and gillnet fleets can expect restrictions for sockeye and king salmon harvests in areas around Juneau and Wrangell, says state area management biologist Dave Harris. We'll be going along in the same um, uh, conservation mode that we've had. We'll probably do very, very similar uh, fisheries management regimes that we have in the last several years. Both rivers have been historically below the lower limits of the state's escapement targets that biologists say are needed to keep the king runs healthy. Harris says there are a number of theories to explain low king returns. They're not fully understood, though a blob of warm water offshore is one of the most well-documented causes. For whatever reason, there's been poor survival rates of king salmon in the open ocean. The 2021 preseason forecast released Monday by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game predicts 9,900 fish on the Stikine River and 10,300 king salmon returning to the Taku River. That's thousands of fish shy of the minimum number of fish that biologists say should return to freshwater to spawn. That means fisheries managers will close areas to trollers targeting lucrative king salmon, and he says less opportunity for the gillnet fleet to fish sockeye salmon when the kings are returning. The Taku and the Stikine River forecasts for 2021 are lower than previous years. Harvest restrictions banning large mesh gear that target kings, as well as prohibition on night fishing, have been in place for several years. Trollers have also seen more areas off-limits as an effort to conserve kings, also known as Chinook salmon. Alaska Trollers Association Executive Director Amy Doherty says the poor forecast is not unexpected. These river systems have been coming in low for a series of years. I think it's five. And it's not ideal but we're going to follow our our managers and try and help these rivers recover. The Stikine and the Taku are southeast Alaska's most productive salmon fishing systems. The largest king salmon run on record for the Stikine River was in 2006, which saw 90,000 kings. The Taku's record year was 1997, at nearly 115,000 fish. Both runs are on transboundary rivers that flow downstream from British Columbia. The U.S. and Canada are treaty-bound to limit their catches to keep the transboundary salmon runs sustainable. I'm Erin Fulton, and this has been Raven News.